A Starbucks store in Buffalo, New York, became the first to be unionized last week, in what may be a stinging rebuke to the Seattle Giants' management, which had been waging an aggressive campaign to prevent it. In the end, 27 employees voted in favor and 19 against, and although the numbers are small, it sends a very strong message to the company, which may face similar votes in 8,000-plus locations across the country. There was no guarantee of success, it was a case of David versus Goliath, where a few workers rebelled against a huge corporation. The company managers argued that working together without a union is better for their employees, whom they describe as partners, and that it speeds up business. We want every partner to love working at Starbucks. We will keep finding new and better ways to continue leading on wages and benefits, improve our listening and active partnership, and keep building a company that matters, Rossan Williams, president of Starbucks North America, said in a letter to Starbucks employees after the vote. However, the message might have rung more true if not for the sinister tactics that those same people employed, which were well covered in the press, including here on Bar Talks. In spite of my aversion to unionization in developed countries, Starbucks demonstrated how to erode trust, in a master class. A campaign of bullying and intimidation was launched by the company, according to the Union Workers United. Starbucks was too clever for its own good. These tactics, such as multiple renovations of stores which expressed a desire to unionize, and texting employees' private mobile phones, fall into the sinister category. Mandatory meetings, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, where pressure was applied, is hard to be viewed in any positive light. In Europe, some of the actions taken by the company would be illegal under privacy and human rights law. The second-largest city in New York State, Buffalo, has had a history of strong support for the labor movement, with a higher percentage of workers unionized than in most other parts of the country. The company is active in a number of positive projects where they are a force for good. They have stood up for equality, better pay, and promoting education among their employees. But not everything is working as it should, and the company has adopted forceful techniques to close down those concerns, when they should have been actively engaged in resolving them. Now that the guerrilla warfare has failed, they should abandon that approach, and re-center themselves around their core principles. Although Central America produces 15% of the world's Arabica beans, the people involved in coffee production are not seeing a future in it. The poor financial returns, as well as the recent coffee crisis, forced hundreds of thousands to flee up north to the U.S. About 10% of the population, approximately 5 million people in Central America, rely on the coffee sector for survival, according to the SICA Intergovernmental Group. Yet coffee production is in decline with a drop of 10% recorded in Central America since October 2017, with another 3% drop being forecast for the current 2021-22 season. Farmers already have debts and losses accumulating from the past few years after losing out to Brazil. Despite the fact that coffee prices recovered in the middle of this year and some farmers were able to break even, the declining output contributes to the difficulty in reaching profitability. Adding to the region's woes was the unwelcome scourge of coffee leaf rust, which further affected the region's production and profits. The fungus was stimulated by the humidity following hurricanes Ada and Iota, which themselves caused devastation and impacted coffee farmers. 
Recent studies show the disease is estimated to have increased among coffee plants from the single digits in the 2019-20 harvest to as much as 25% in the current season. This crisis also caused a record high in the U.S.-Mexico migrant flow this year, despite migrant surges occurring periodically whenever there is fluctuation in the coffee sector. Rene Leon Gomez, Executive Secretary of PROMCAFE, a regional research network formed by the National Coffee Institutes of Central America, stated, When coffee is not doing well, that's when you see big migrations from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua. The decision of farmers to migrate north is the last resort. They have been producing at a loss for years and often also working on larger farms to make ends meet. According to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, there had been a record high of 1.7 million apprehensions at the border of the U.S. and Mexico in the last fiscal year, which ended on September 30. These figures do not include those who succeeded in crossing the border illegally, which means the exact numbers of those fleeing up north is unknown. Based on the Honduran Coffee Institute data, during three months in 2019, 5.4% of 990 Honduran coffee farmers reported that at least one family member had left for the U.S. If these figures are applied to the rest of the country's coffee industry, that equals about 6% of Honduran's total unauthorized border crossings in just three months. Some coffee farmers are simply giving up and selling their possession, whether that be their oxen or their homes, and setting their sight on migration up north to the border as their best chance for salvation, regardless of the dangers involved. The first Ecuador Cup of Excellence coffee auction broke the previous record of price per pound that was established in Ethiopia earlier this year. The Ecuadorian national judges met last week with the winning farmers and representatives of the Asociación de Cafés Especials de Ecuador at Universidad Ecotec in Guayaquil. For the 23 winning microlot coffees, the total added up to slightly over $250,000. This gives an average of $33.35 per pound. The top two lots were bought by Taiwanese companies. The best-scoring lot of washed process, Tipica Mejorado variety coffee, grown by Abel Salinas Pacheco, was bought by Haru International Corporation for $97.10 per pound. The second-best lot of natural-processed Sidra variety coffee, grown by Pablo Andres Aguigur and Calisto at El Aguacate Farm, was bought by Osser Coffee for $49.20 per pound. Osser Coffee's Joe Sue stated, The first-ever Ecuador Cup of Excellence is worth celebrating. We'll host four to five public cuppings within Taiwan in our cafe and some interesting places, like coffee events. Ecuadorian coffee has recently gained interest with customers here in Taiwan, which has caused us to want to find extraordinary lots to bring into Taiwan. We will definitely promote it. The third best lot was also a washed process, Tipica Mejorado variety coffee, grown by Kurt John Madison at Alaska Del Sur. This was bought by U.S. coffee companies Cometeer and George Howell Coffee for $75.10 per pound. The top six coffees were all grown in the Loya region, with others hailing from Pachincha, Chimborazo, Imbabura, and Zamora regions. The second Ecuador Cup of Excellence competition is scheduled for 2022. Keurig Green Mountain has tentatively reached a settlement for a class action lawsuit regarding the company's recyclability claims. The case was first filed in November 2018 by California law firm, Lexington Law Group, with allegations that the U.S. company is deceiving customers, with claims of its polypropylene K-cups being recyclable. 
According to a consumer who sued the company, Kathleen Smith, Keurig instructed consumers to dispose of the metal lid and coffee grounds before recycling the cup and filter, but urged consumers to, quote, check locally to recycle empty cup. In the lawsuit, it also stated that these cups are overlooked at materials recovery facilities, MRFs, due to its small size, and when not disposed of by the MRFs, the cups can contaminate other recyclables. On top of that, when these cups are sorted and sold to plastic reclaimers, they may still be difficult to recycle, due to the residual metal and food contaminants. In court, the company argued that polypropylene pods are different from the original pods Keurig manufactures, and that its marketing language used complies with the FTC's green guides because not all communities can recycle the pods. However, the judge disagreed, and Keurig's motion to dismiss the case was denied in June 2019 by Judge Haywood Gilliam Jr. However, in late October this year, the two parties submitted a notice to notify the judge that both parties have reached an agreement following negotiations. In the notice, there was also a request for Judge Gilliam to delay the case so as to allow the parties to convert the agreement into a legal settlement document. Judge Gilliam approved the request, and the parties have until February 22, 2022, to submit a motion for preliminary approval. While the details of the agreement weren't disclosed, the original complaint by Smith included a request for Keurig to stop making claims that its pods are recyclable. On top of that, she asked the judge to order the company to pay restitution to all class members, damages, and punitive damages, as well as conduct a corrective advertising and information campaign. Luckin narrowly fell short of posting a profit according to unaudited results. The company has made a dramatic recovery following a close brush with bankruptcy after admitting fraud in 2019, forcing it to delist from the U.S. stock market. Under new management, the company is thriving and announced total net revenues for the third quarter of $364.7 million, which is over a 100% increase from the same quarter last year. Luckin accomplished this in part by increasing sales by 83.9% to $300.2 million as well as a dramatic increase of revenues from partnership stores, which saw revenues grow by 355% over the previous year to $264.6 million. Additionally, their average monthly customer numbers increased to $14.7 million which is up 79.2% from the previous year. These numbers show that, whatever the U.S. investors may think of Luckin, the Chinese consumer likes what they're selling. The net loss was cut by 99% to $3.6 million for the quarter ending September 30, driven by a combination of increased revenues and increased margin. This is a trick that is easy in concept and hard to achieve in practice. Chairman and Chief Executive Jeannie Guo said the strong performance was due to, quote, increased customer retention and order frequency, greater brand recognition, and our products achieving higher average selling price. Guo went on to say, We are seeing strong performance across the business in the third quarter with increased customer retention and order frequency, greater brand recognition, and our products achieving higher average selling price. Specifically, some of our innovative products, such as iced coconut latte, were very well received by our customers, benefiting from the relatively hot weather, compared to other seasons. Further, we continue to execute against our strategic plan, with the expansion of our luck in partnership stores contributing significantly to revenue growth. 
our improved profitability is demonstrated through the significant reduction in operating losses for the quarter, as well as our store-level operating margin increasing to over 25%. Dr. Guo added, we appreciate the dedication and contribution of all Luck and Coffee employees and the continuous trust and support of our customers. While we are pleased with the latest quarterly results, we remain focused on the execution of our long-term strategic plan to continue providing outstanding and innovative products and services to our customers and driving long-term value for shareholders. It has to be said that these are unaudited accounts, although it is difficult to believe the company would repeat the mistake that almost sunk them just two years ago. The change in the company's fortune is quite remarkable, and credit should be given to the current executive team that has performed something of a miraculous retail recovery. Singapore-based coffee startup Flash Coffee opened up two new stores in South Korea. This marks the company's sixth Asian-Pacific market and its plans of rapid expansion. Both stores in South Korea are in the Gangnam district, one in Yoksam and the other a flagship two-story in Sinsa. Managing Director of Flash Coffee Korea, Unco, stated. South Korea is filled with coffee enthusiasts and our coffee consumption rate ranks within the top 10 in the world. We are confident that our high-quality beverages crafted by award-winning baristas at Flash Coffee will appeal to South Korean coffee lovers. Our goal is to make our specialty coffee accessible to all. Flash Coffee uses a convenient business model where customers can order on an app, with options for store pickup or delivery. The startup first launched in Jakarta in January 2020 and expanded into its home turf in October the same year. Since obtaining a $15 million investment in April this year, Flash Coffee has been on a rapid expansion and plans to open 300 new stores by the end of 2021. At the start of October this year, the coffee startup just expanded to Hong Kong. On top of that, Flash Coffee has opened up eight more new stores in Singapore in the last month alone making a total of 28 stores island-wide. The coffee startup now operates over 200 outlets across the region, including Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, Hong Kong, Taiwan and South Korea. The company has also revealed plans to open up in Japan in the near future. At this rate of expansion, and its growing popularity, the idea of Flash Coffee becoming a household name for coffee in Asia might not be that far-fetched at all. UK-based company BioBeans product development and technology team has taken a step towards scaling up its work within a project the company is part of, called the Horizon 2020 Ways, TUP. In a press release in mid-November, the company announced its participation in the EU-funded pilot project. Describing it in cringing management terms, they said the project would demonstrate the establishment of new value chains for the use of urban biowaste through a multi-stakeholder approach in line with a circular economy. Although we couldn't understand what that meant, the company fortunately added some detail. According to BioBin, spent coffee grounds have up to 20% oil content, which could be used as a sustainable material. The company's work in the project is focusing on the use of this residual oil to create sustainable bioplastic. Its plan is to collect spent coffee grounds from UK businesses, process the grounds and extract the oil, before shipping to its partner, Nafigate, who will prep the oil to be incorporated into a biodegradable food wrapping. BioBean's product development and technology team, currently in France, took a big step in the process, 
when they started using a facility specialized in a clean, sustainable extraction method to maximize the volume of oil that can be procured. With this facility, BioBeans data scientists will be able to model the economics of a highly scaled coffee oil extraction.